like I should open this week's episode uh, of the show before the show with an apology because we just uh, recorded our interview that you will hear in a short time with Benjamin Hill. I think I was coughing in the background through like half of it. So in case you're wondering why I suddenly have a like deeper sexy voice this week. (laughs) Hey, everybody. It's because I've had this weird like sort of cold, which uh, so I've worked from home now for six straight seasons since I got uh, this gig. Um, so I'm rarely exposed to like the petri dish of germs that is in an office. So I don't really get sick that often. But the last like five days or so, I've had like kind of a sore throat. And now I've got like a cough with it. And uh, uh, less than a week, I leave the country for a month, uh, over which time I will be broadcasting and using this voice quite a lot. And I really hope that this goes away. <laughs> so this I might am. be a Tyler Light episode, as Tyler's could be. voice. Could be. So I am sorry. I apologize for the coughs. If you Although I will that. say, if it's resulting in a sexier, deeper voice, maybe we need well, to use more of you this week. That is true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> welcome in, folks. Uh, but really, welcome in to this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is my co-host and our fearless leader in New York City. And uh, coming up here in a little bit, Sam will be joined by Oakland Athletics catching prospect Sean Murphy, who I almost made miss a bus in spring training earlier this year. Uh, Sean Murphy currently rehabbing. He's had kind of a banged up year, but when he's been healthy, been really, really good. With the uh, AAA Las Vegas Aviators, he is set to be activated from the injured list, I believe, tonight. He's supposed yes, to, uh, he actually is. He confirms Aviators. to that, confirms that to me in the interview. He says he, uh, when I called him, I was like, "You're in Arizona." He's like, "I am not. I'm with Vegas." So fantastic. Yeah, um, good to see Sean Murphy back. Uh, on the field and health so you will hear from him coming up here in a little bit with sam and uh thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the show before the show wherever you found us we are at milb.com slash podcast we are also on itunes apple podcast google play uh all over the place you can find us anywhere you can get in touch with the show podcast at milb.com we got a very nice offer uh earlier today the subject line was to podcast bags uh, dear podcast, as though pod was our first name and cast was our last name, we bags manufacturer in, uh, I don't know how to say the name of this town in China, but they make a lot of bags, Sam, just in case you're wondering, waste bags, W-A-I-S-T, I'm assuming that means like fanny packs, um, neoprene bags, in case you want to take your bag fly fishing, shopping bags, backpack, etc. So if we need bags, we, we got a hookup now. Yeah, but they didn't pay for any email. of these, this advertising. They just sent us an <laughs> this, email. This so. scammy company did not pay for any advertising. And I'm sure now clicking on and reading this email, I've probably infected my computer with God knows how many viruses. Uh, but uh, anyway, hi. Let's, uh, let's get started. First uh, is three strikes in which every week we discuss the top topics in all of minor league baseball. And this week we will kick things off. Uh, with a, a kind of a preview of the playoff race. We're into the final couple of weeks of this regular season and headed into postseason chases all across the minor leagues. Of course, many minor leagues already have some of their playoff participants determined uh, leagues that go with a half season schedule to determine first half champions, second half champions. Uh, and then there are full season leagues such as at the AAA levels that just take the full season standings and parse out their postseason uh, participants from that group. Uh, but Sam, the playoff races that you are keeping an eye on right now are what for strike one? 
Yeah, so I just wrote down a couple of them. I'm going to burn through them first, and then I'll, I'll circle back on some of the more interesting ones. But uh, in the IL North, uh, Scranton, Syracuse, Buffalo, and Rochester are all separated by three games. Right now, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Rail Riders have a one-game lead over Syracuse. Buffalo is two games back. Rochester is three games back. That should be really interesting to watch how that's going to break down in, in the North Division in the IL, especially if you've been following that Scranton team this season. Uh, you know – Basically, half the Yankees at any time has been filled with guys who played at Scranton. Um, so the fact that they are still holding a one-game lead going into the playoffs is really cool and really interesting. Uh, over in the PCL, in the PCL Southern Division or Pacific Southern Division, excuse me, the Las Vegas Aviators, who now have Sean Murphy as as Tyler mentioned, uh, hold a one-game lead over the El Paso chihuahuas as of wednesday when we are recording this uh el paso has been one of the teams of the season just because their offense has been so crazy uh this season literally setting records uh pcl records triple a records i believe um so that has been really cool but vegas you know they've had their fair share of prospects seth brown has actually been one of the most productive productive hitters in the pcl this year they get back sean murphy i think Jesus Luzardo is supposed to pitch for them on Sunday. Uh, they just got rid of A.J. Puck, and we'll touch on that in a little bit. Um, but that's a division race to watch to see how things are going to shake out there. Uh, in the Southern League, Biloxi holds a two-game lead over Jacksonville and holds a three-game lead over Pensacola. Uh, the reason I, I think that race is interesting is that Pensacola team is absolutely loaded. Uh, they've got Alex Kirilov, Royce Lewis, Trevor Larnick. Uh Watching that offense any, on any given night, it could explode. Three games with a week and a half to go is a pretty big gap to make up, but, you know, it could happen. Uh, Tulsa has a one-game lead for Arkansas. That's interesting because Arkansas has been very, very good and, and one of the most loaded teams that we've talked about here on the podcast and written about all the time. Uh, Arkansas clinched the first half title, so they're already in the playoffs. It's just whether they go for a sweep. There's some, some guys who have been there all season long. I'm thinking about Evan White and Justin Dunn, who would like to have both division crowns, I'm sure. Um, but we'll see if they can hold off the drillers in that one. They're actually one game behind. I don't know if I said they were one game ahead. They're one game behind uh, Tulsa. In uh, the Iowa wild card, going back to the International League, uh, Charlotte holds a two-game lead over Durham. There are three divisions in the International League, so they figure out the fourth postseason participant through a wild card. The reason why that's interesting is Durham has won the last two Governor's Cups. Uh, it's been one of the most biggest dynasties, I guess you could kind of call it, uh, in Triple A baseball. Durham won 2018, won 2017, won up against Memphis both years in the Triple A National Championship. Now they're in danger of missing the playoffs. Obviously, it's a whole new team. But the Tampa Bay Rays, being one of the most loaded systems in baseball, uh, continually fill the, the Bulls with a good quality roster. Uh, and now they're going up against a Knights roster that is particularly loaded. Luis Robert continues to go off. Nick Madrigal has been a really, really good hitter at AAA, uh, not in just in terms of taking advantage of the ball and hitting home runs. That's not really his game. His first homer was actually inside the park. Um, but he's picking up his hits. He's still rarely striking out. Either one of those teams that gets in is going to be really cool. So that'll be cool to watch out for here in the last week and a half. Last one I'll point out is all the way down at the New York Penn League, who is having its all-star game tonight in Staten Island. We'll see if they get it in. It's supposed to rain here in New York City. But the McNamara division in the New York Penn League, Hudson Valley, Brooklyn, Aberdeen, and Staten Island are all within one game of each other. Um, so anything is possible in that division as, as teams try to shake it out and 
fight their way to the New York Penn League uh, postseason. Um, some loaded rosters in there. Aberdeen just lost Adley Rushman at a time when he was incredibly hot. He went five for five in his last game with the Ironbirds. That takes a hit a little bit for them, but he does move to Delmarva, who is in the Sally League playoffs already, and they're going for a second half division title again. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye out on some of those divisions. They're going to be really tight. We know playoffs aren't the biggest thing in, in minor league baseball. It, it doesn't always matter, but it does matter to the players. And if some of your favorite prospects are on these teams, know that they care about these postseason races and they are going for it. They're going for a trophy and a ring. Uh, and the only way they can do that is by punching their ticket to the postseason. So it might seem like we're in the dog days and, and the final stretch, but these last you know, 10, 12 games are going to matter a lot to some of these guys. Strike two this week, we are already uh, getting into end-of-season award recognition, and today the California League at Class A Advanced released its end-of-season all-star group. Um, Co-MVPs in that league, Lake Elsinore catcher Luis Camposano and Lancaster first baseman Luis Castro uh, will share the MVP award in 2019. Camposano is the Padres' number eight prospect. He has been fantastic all season, a 320 average through 103 games so far this year. Castro... Colorado Rockies prospect uh, leading the league in OPS at 993. Uh, second place in the league is his teammate Casey Golden, who is at 901. This has been a pretty good season for Luis Castro. But who else stands out among these uh, end-of-season All-Stars and the honorees in the Cal League? Yeah, I just want to point out a little bit more about Luis Camposano real quick. Um, you mentioned the 320 average. This is somebody who hit 288 in 70 games last year at Class A Fort Wayne. He was a second-round pick in 2017, uh, still only 20 years old, kind of coming on really strongly here in his second full season. It's been really exciting to see him take off in the way he has. You mentioned number eight prospect in that Padres system. It's tough to get into that kind of rarefied air, but he's certainly there. What I like beyond that is you know, it, yes, it's the Cal League. You're going to put up some really good offensive numbers, but he has struck out 52 times this year. He's walked 49. Um, so he's got a really good approach at the plate. He pairs it with some some decent pop, 13 homers in 103 games. Uh, he's kind of kind of become the next guy to watch in that system. Uh, they just graduated Francisco Mejia this season. Everybody kind of wanted him to be the catcher of the future. I know there are a lot of Padres prospect watchers who anytime somebody would bring up uh, the catching position and be like, oh, no, no it's okay. It's going to be taken care of by Camposano in a couple of years. I don't know if we can quite say that yet, um, but for him to take off this year in the way he has is really interesting. And he's got a plus arm as well. Um, so it, it's a really interesting package that he's rolled into into his second full season. He was number 18 to start the year, now jumped up to number eight, adds a little bit of hardware here uh, in, in the Cal League end-of-season all-star list. Uh, two other guys to point out, Mackenzie Gore was named to the end-of-season all-star list as one of the four pitchers. Uh, Mackenzie Gore, you might remember, had a 1.02 ERA and a 0.71 whip with 110 strikeouts and 79 at third innings. Probably should have been the pitcher of, year, of the year, or certainly would have been, had he not been called up, uh, we actually had an interesting story. This is what this reminds me of. Ty France got called up to the Padres last week after hitting 390 Paso. Um, you know, we were all talking about it. Could he be the guy to break through 400 after we focused on Vlad Jr. last year? Instead, he gets the call up. That's what he cares about. He'd rather be a major leaguer who hit 399 in AAA than being a AAA guy who hit 401 but has a season end on Labor Day. Um, so Mackenzie Gore kind of in that same mode. You want to sit here now and say, well, if he had been three more weeks with Lake Elsinore, he's probably the pitcher of the year. But he would rather be a double-A Amarillo sod poodle 
uh, making his way up towards San Diego than somebody who continually dominated the Cal League when he wasn't getting anything out of it. Um, so he gets a mention here, at least as a Cal League All-Star at the end of the year. One other guy, Heliot Ramos, another guy who's moved up to Double A. He's now with Richmond in the giant system, but he hit 306, 385, 500 uh, with 13 homers and six stolen bases over 77 games for San Jose. Dealt with a couple injury issues for him, uh, but came back strong and earned one of the outfield spots on this team. So uh, for being one and our first really end of season all-star list, there's lots to chew over here in the Cal League. Uh, And at a time when the Cal League is usually the one that we kind of dismiss for being uh, so hitter friendly, at a time when the AAA leagues were basically that this year, it's been kind of cool to see other names come through like Camposano and see Gore really dominate the Cal League in the way he did. Um, so it was definitely a memorable season over there on the West Coast. And strike three this week, the Oakland Athletics have uh, summoned one of their top prospects to the major leagues. Left-handed pitcher A.J. Puck called up from AAA Las Vegas. Uh, and this season for A.J. Puck got started a little late, recovering from uh, from surgery, from Tommy John surgery, and um, getting into – the start to this year, it seemed like A.J. Puck could make this climb depending on where he was going to kind of find himself this season, but really only needed combined 18 appearances this year, uh, three with Class A Advanced Stockton, six with Double A Midland, and nine with Triple A Las Vegas, uh, and he has made it to the big leagues. Um, this is a guy who was a first-round pick back in 2016. Looked like maybe last year was going to be the time we saw A.J. Puck break into the big leagues early on in the 2018 season, then, of course, the injury and all that. Um, but with this uh, with this call, uh, this is a guy that A's fans have been excited about for a while. It's been kind of a bumpy road in the last couple of seasons, but he's still only 24. Like This is a, this is a perfectly right-on timeline for somebody like A.J. Puck to be arriving. Yeah, I mean, for a 2016 first-round pick to be – yeah. You know, you would think like at the time, oh, 2019 would make sense. And that's where he is um, because the stuff is so good, really. Uh, You know, coming out of of surgery, the A's from the beginning basically said outside of three starts, and I put starts in in air quotes there, uh, with Stockton, uh, hey, listen, we think, you know, your innings need to be limited. You're coming out out of Tommy John surgery, which happened pretty late in the spring in 2000. 2018. So he didn't get his start until June 11th. Uh, if you're going to have an impact for the major league team this year, it's not going to be if we're extending you out as a starter. It's going to be if we can, you know, limit you and, and get you some innings as a reliever and see how that's going to work. The long term is still for him to be a starter. I don't think Oakland has made any bones about that. Um, but this offered them to or allowed them to, like I said, limit the innings and also see what he can do in that role. And he's done well enough to get this call. Uh, he made nine appearances of the AAA Las Vegas, struck out 16 over 11 innings in that time, only allowed three walks. Uh, did have a 4.91 ERA, but the, the sample size is kind of small on that. Uh, did give up three home runs. You know, that's the PCL in 2019 for you. Uh, but we've seen starts or outings from him in which he was hitting 98 uh, 97, 98. The slider is going to work in shorter stints. The slider is very good to begin with, um, but that plus fastball plus the above average slider 
that's enough to make a really, really good reliever. Uh, he has a curveball and a change. I don't think he really needs them so much. Maybe he'll use them to continue to develop them. You might see him flip a couple here and there. Uh, but if the A's are going to use him as the dominant reliever, he could be out of the gate. He really just needs that fastball and slider. Um, you know, now they can extend him out through through September instead of having to shut him down early. And you know, the, the A's are kind of at a point now where they need all the help they can get. Not because they're floundering by any means, but they are trying to hold off. You know, the Rays and the. Um, the red, you know, the Red Sox are a couple games back, but uh, the the Indians, like they, that, they a wild card race, basically a three team race right now between the Indians, the Rays, and the A's. But the A's are only half game back. They need all the help they can get. And Puck, using him as a weapon, and this far out, you know, they could have waited until September. They do it now because a he's ready, and b they need him. Uh, is is really satisfying, you know, as a prospect watcher who, who they could have easily just punted this to next year and waited to start his service time clock. But um, you know what he does in this role will be really interesting. I don't think it's going to affect his long term future. He comes up and struggles. Okay, great. Well, next year he's probably starting the year in Vegas anyways to get extended out into a starting role. Um, but for now, this is exciting to see how the A's are going to use him and how his premium stuff really plays. Uh, and, you know, for somebody who started the year trying to build up again to end the year in the major leagues is exciting for A.J. Puck. So it's going to be really, really fun to see what he can do here in the last, you know, five, six weeks of the major league season. And a guy who A.J. Puck is super familiar with joins the show coming up next. Sean Murphy back with the AAA Las Vegas Aviators and the Oakland Athletics Organization caught up with Sam. Sean Murphy on this week's episode of the show before the show next. Joining us this week on the Minor League Baseball Podcast from the Las Vegas Aviators officially today, we just found out, uh, is number three A's prospect Sean Murphy. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and glad to hear that you are back with the Aviators. For those people who don't know, I think a lot of A's fans will be tuning into this. But for those who don't know, you had been rehabbing in the AZL. Uh, you were coming back from a bit of a knee injury. You had one earlier in the year as well that required surgery on your left meniscus. Uh, take us through this yeah. most recent rehab process and what it was like trying to get back to a place where you could rejoin the Aviators. Um, uh, so the most recent one wasn't, uh, it was kind of just a, a re-aggravation of the original one. Basically, you know, it was, uh, probably some scar tissue that I tore up, uh, when I was, uh, coming back in Las Vegas. So after my original, uh, meniscus tear, we, uh, got that cleaned up, had, uh, surgery, got it scoped out and cleaned up. And then, uh, went back to Vegas, played in a few games and then, uh, you know, I felt something weird in there again, um, Went and went back, looked at it again. Uh, no structural damage or anything, so it was probably just some scar tissue or just a re-aggravation of it. And uh, so I spent, you know, another two and a half, three weeks in Arizona just making sure we get it right. Mm. And what was the mental process like for coming back from that? Being a catcher, your knees are pretty important. Being a baseball player, your knees are important. Uh, so where were you mentally before you knew that it was just the scar tissue? Uh, I was pretty frustrated. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what it was, you know, um, was frustrated, uh, a ton that night when it happened, you know, cause I, did, I didn't know, uh, it's just swelled up pretty quick on me. Then uh, I woke up the next morning, uh, in a much better mood just cause I, I knew it wasn't anything serious. It wasn't, you know, a retear or anything just cause I could, I could tell, I, uh, how good it felt the next day compared to the last time I did it. Mm. 
Hmm. And what is the rehab process like coming back from something like that? I know you said you spent time in Arizona. You got three games in in the AZL. It, it looked like you were playing one game, sitting the next, playing the next game. Um, but what yeah. do you do just to come back from it when you know it's probably just a time issue? Uh, just patience. Um, you know, the training staff down there is you know, top-notch. Um, and, you know, they have a progression. You know, everything is written out. Uh, so there's no little confusion. So, you know, you get there, you, you get in the tubs, you get on the training table, they do, you know, cupping or soft tissue, whatever it is that day. Then there's, you know, therapeutic workout. And then there's a lift in, then it's, you know, back on the tables for some more work. So it's a, it's a long process, but, uh, you know, they're very thorough down there. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the effort they put in. Hmm. And going back to coming back from the, the surgery, um, that was obviously an even longer process. You missed most of May and June because of that, pretty much all of May and June. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. At what point do you trust that knee again? I mean, what exercises do they have you going through? Again, I know it takes patience, but uh, at what point, or how do you build up the strength in that so you can test it out in games again? You know, that's what we do in Arizona. Um, you know, so, so testing out with some light lifts and some range of motion and just kind of adding on every day to a point where I feel comfortable doing everything I was doing before, before the knee injury. And, um, you know, as far as trusting it, that's just, you know, something I have to do. Um, you know, when you, when you get out there, you can't, you can't be thinking about it because the second you start thinking about it, then you start, and then you increase your injury and injury, uh, chances just cause you're, you're being so cautious and, you know, you're trying, trying to avoid stuff like that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, I've done all the rehab. I've done everything I need to do. You know, everything looks good. Doctors say I look good. So, um, you know, I'm going to trust and go with them. And uh, I feel ready to play. So, you know, I'm going to get out there and play. Hmm. And the the last time you were with Vegas, it was, it was a short stint. It was four games. But you came out firing, basically. You had six home runs in, in four games, including a three-homer game in there, in which you helped Vegas set a PCL record. I think there were 11 home runs in one game. What were you yep. able to take away from that time, knowing, hey, I can come back into this lineup and plug myself in right away and come back hot? Uh, what are you able to take from that time and put into what these next couple of days will be like with Vegas? Yeah, it's a confidence booster. Um, you never know when you come back from a layoff what, what you're going to do. And, uh, you know, they just go out there and, you know, swing the bat really well. It's a big confidence booster. It just kind of lets you know that, like, you know, hey, you you still got it. You know, it's it's still there. Um, you, you know, if you come back and you you're shaky or you're not swinging it well, then you kind of start to question, you know, all the things you did in the rehab and stuff. And uh, you know, it's it's nice to get a few knocks out of the way when, when you're coming back from a from a long layoff. Hmm. And offensively, is there anything you can do to kind of keep that momentum coming? I know I know physically that's tough to do. You can't exactly get in a cage with a a hurt knee, but uh, in terms of watching video, in terms of dissecting what worked during that four-game stretch, I mean, how were you able to try to pick up where you left off? Um, I was doing uh, some vision drills every day during rehab as far as, uh, you know, reacting to tennis balls and then stuff like that. Um, you know, I think that probably helped me. Uh, so I, I continued to do that once I got back down there for my second rehab stint. Uh, you know, it's just making sure the eyes are still working. Cause that's the biggest part. Uh, just making sure your eyes are adjusted to the, the speed of the game, and uh, you know, just just stay in there and keeping the keeping the brain and the eyes sharp. 
and, and kind of take me through what those vision drills are. I know you mentioned tennis balls, but what exactly are you doing in those to keep the eye sharp? Okay, so yeah, the tennis balls all have uh, have numbers and in, in, in different colors, and uh, you know it, it's a, it shoots them out at a high velocity, and you kind of stand there and react and, and read the read the numbers and the colors on the baseball or the tennis balls, and uh, you know try and train your brain to react and, and see as, as as quickly and as sharply as possible. Hmm, gotcha, and uh, yeah, kind of take me through this year as a whole. You know, being at AAA, starting out at AAA. Uh, this year you are one step away you got a little bit of time with nashville last year uh, but this is what was meant to be your first extended taste of that uh what is it like being this close and and what how are you kind of approaching the season knowing also that you're rule five eligible you're probably going to be added to the 40 man at some point uh how do you approach being this close um no differently than uh any other year you know you still have to go out and play. Uh, you, if you think about things like, you know, you're one step away or, you know, how close you are to, you know, getting to the big leagues and, you know, you start to take your eye off the ball a little bit. Um, you know, the second you do that, you start to struggle. So, you know, I don't really think about stuff like that. I don't want to, um, you know, the whole goal is to play well here every day and uh, let the chips fall as they may. And, you know, just play well and then, and be here and not have my mind be somewhere else. No, fair enough. Well, one of the big stories in AAA this year is the new ball there. Being a catcher, you're working kind of on both sides. You have to work with pitchers, yeah. and you're working as a hitter yourself. You're getting a little bit of the benefits of that new ball that way, but you're trying to work with pitchers to minimize the damage as well. What has it been like being a catcher in the PCL in 2019? <laughs> uh, there's definitely a lot of offense, but uh, I think at the end of the day, it's you know, I think everybody should like the ball, the ball change. Um, you know, guys in AAA, you know, the, the pitchers and guys are up and down between the big leagues and, you know, they shouldn't be having to change balls. I think that's important uh, for those guys to have the same feel because the difference between the minor league balls and the big league balls, you know, are, is pretty significant as far as like the seams and, and how they feel and how your pitches move with them. And so I think it's good for the pitchers for when they get up to the big leagues. But, uh, you know, the, you know, playing in Vegas, there's some frustrating moments for the pitchers where, you know, they're giving up home runs that, you know, have no business being home runs. But on the other side, sometimes you hit a cheap home run, and that's fun. <laughs> you won't complain from that side, I, I get. No. Uh, well, speaking of your defensive work, one thing that's always stood out since the A's took you in the third round in 2016 has been your defensive work uh, behind the plate. How do you kind of develop that aspect of your game to be to the point where you are – basically elite people grade out your arm as plus plus i think you've had 20 games catching in vegas this year only two guys have attempted to run on you you got one of them uh so you got a 50 percent caught stealing rate how do you develop that side of the game to show its major league readiness especially in today's game where there is such of a added emphasis on catching you know metrics and and how the catching position is looked at defensively I mean, um, yeah, you have to look at those metrics. Uh, you got to go back and you got to, you know, look at the track man and look at your framing numbers and all that. And, you know, you know, the framing numbers is a big thing right now. And everybody's looking at those and trying to improve those. And, uh, you know, I think that's the most important part of our job, <clears throat> stealing strikes for our pitchers. Um, you know, just having a, having a coach and a coordinator there that can, that can analyze those numbers and kind of, put them simply to you like hey here's what we need to do here's what we need to work on and then you can go look at guys with good numbers in those certain aspects 
uh, and you can kind of try and copy and mimic them and see what they do differently than you. And what's an example of something that has been brought to you and has allowed you to grow your game on that side? Um, so I was struggling framing a, uh, a pitch on the left side of the plate. Um, I wasn't framing it well. Uh, everywhere else, you know, I had, had good numbers, but the, you know, the one side of the plate, I was, I was losing pitches. You know, I didn't understand why. So we looked at it and we went back and we watched, uh, we watched Yasmani Grandal, who's got great numbers on that side of the plate. Hmm. And saw what he did, and you know, I tried to, I tried to mimic that, and I tried to, you know, copy that and improve my numbers there, and you know, I think it helped a little bit. Hmm. What, what it specifically were you seeing in his game that you could do? Because I don't know if people really heard about framing on specific sides, and one side being a strength and one side being a weakness. Uh, yeah. What, what were you able to copy from Grandall's game specifically? Well, it was more, uh, you know, using my body uh, to suddenly move the ball back towards the zone, and not, not as much uh, with my glove. I was, you know, I was snapping the glove back to the zone and, you know, that doesn't fool anybody. Um, so I was trying to be more subtle uh, and using using my body to center up the baseball and then move it back that way. Hmm. So I know you mentioned you have coordinators who kind of translate this stuff to you, but I remember a couple of years ago yeah. I was talking to A.J. Puck and he was saying pitchers at least had green sheets in the A's organization of all the advanced numbers and what they want you to focus on. How much of the work yeah. are you doing yourself in pouring over numbers or how much are you going to them and saying, Hey, what, what does this all mean? Um, we're looking at those um, with the coordinators probably every few weeks, but every day we'll go in and into the video, into the video room at our affiliates. And I'll look at a few pitches from the night before. I was like, I don't know if I got this one or I did get this one. Let's see what I did here. Um, you know, there's probably four or five pitches a game where I'm like, I'm, I'm interested in seeing uh why I did or didn't get the call and, uh, you know, try and correct that. Hmm. And and just take me through your kind of development long-term as a defensive catcher. At, at what point did you realize, Hey, this is really my strength. This is because it's not like speed or it's not like power where you can see, you know, I can outrun guys, right? I can hit the ball harder than them. At what point did you yeah. realize this was kind of a carrying tool for you, even dating back to maybe high school or college? <clears throat> Probably around high school, um, I was I was a late bloomer. I was small going through high school, and you know, I was, you know, 150 pounds as a senior in high school. You know, I wasn't, you know, too much of a threat at the plate, but uh, you know, I could always catch. Um, you know, that was a part of the game I could be good at as a small guy. Uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't a great great hitter, but I said, you know, I, there's there's other stuff out there, and. Uh, so I became a catcher because I like being involved uh, in the game and the game calling and stuff. And, you know, I just ended up having a kind of a knack for it. And uh, being small, you know, you have to develop good fundamentals to get the job done. And I think, you know, my dad helped me with that. Um, so <clears throat> right away, it was kind of it was kind of the thing for me. I was always better at defense. Hmm. So is that small kid mentality something you feel like you still carry with you? Or is it just that shed, but at least the tactics have kind of stayed? Yeah, yeah, that, that the second one. I think uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, don't have that small kid mentality anymore. But you know, the the fundamentals and the and the things I had to do to to become a good player at a small size kind of carry over. And as we mentioned, you've been in the the A system now since 2016 when they took you in the third round. Uh, one question that continually comes up with the A's is that you know, dating back to the days of Moneyball and all that is how do they, how are they able to generate this level of talent and compete year in and year out without making the bigger signings being in the pipeline. Now, 
What have you noticed about the A's? I know you don't know other organizations as intimately as you do Oakland, but what have you noticed yeah. about the way they do things that you feel like generates major league ready talent year in and year out? You know, I, I couldn't tell you what, what I think they do differently, but, uh, you know, I know we do well. I, I think we have, you know, a great group of coaches at every single level. You know, there's not, there's not one or two levels where the coaches are, are, aren't, you know, elite. Um, so I think every year when you get placed in an affiliate, you're, you're dealing with, you know, great coaches and, and good baseball minds. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a product of, of good staff and, uh, and, and, you know, a good, uh, a good kind of commitment to player development that the A's have. Hmm. And uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about too, is in one of your games down there in the AZL last week, uh, you had a really cool opportunity, at least for those of us watching, you got to catch. Oh yeah. 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 You know what I'm probably talking about. Nathan Patterson's debut. Uh, Nathan Patterson for anybody listening at home who doesn't know was signed by the A's basically because of the pitching ninja on Twitter. Uh, He threw, I think 96 at a stadium radar gun, uh, you know, got some some clicks on Twitter, showed off his video. Uh, the A's end up signing him, betting on the arm, put him in the AZL. He throws to Sean Murphy in his debut, strikes out three in the first inning. What was that like, just bringing a, a guy like that in, almost off the street, and having him strike yeah. out the side in that first inning? No, it was, it was a cool moment for everybody, you know. You know, everybody's rooting for him like that, but he was, he was real nervous. I was trying to calm him down, and... uh I think once he got out there on the mound, he, he he settled in and started to start, you know, feel like, uh, you know, he could do this and get that first strike. And I think once he got that first strike, he, uh, he you know, he had everything working. Um, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a really good pitcher. He's got a great arm. Um, you know, I think he's got good feel for off speed pitches and, uh, you know, you're not sure what to expect with, with, with the guy who's had, you know, such a long time out of baseball, but, uh, you know, that's, it was a cool moment for everybody. And, and kind of take us through that scouting report, especially with it, when it comes to the, the off-speed stuff, because, again, we've seen now that he has at least some velo to rely on and that yeah. can get you through the lower levels. But where, where is, what is the status of his breaking pitches? What is he able to throw? And how, much, how many you know, breaking pitches were you putting down to call in just an inning like that? Well, interestingly, the, uh, the last strike out of the inning was a, was a 3-2 curveball. Oh. So uh, he's got... He's got confidence to feel for it. Uh, you know, he's just got he got fastball, curveball, slider, changeup. Um, you know, all all three of those are are, are good secondary pitches. So, uh, you know, he's he's got got some work to go with with those. But uh, you know, it was a great start for him. Um, everybody was happy. You know, everybody was was pretty pretty psyched when he went out there and struck out the side. You know, you weren't necessarily expecting that. So it was it was cool. It was cool. I was glad I was there to catch it. Yeah, very cool. Um, so, yeah, so now that you have about a week and a half here left in the minor league season, now that you are back yeah. with Las Vegas, uh, what are your kind of goals? What are you hoping to show the A's, yourself, anybody uh, here in the last week and a half? I know the Aviators are in a bit of a playoff race right now. You guys are a game up on El Paso, so that could extend yeah. or you could get called up in September. But what are you hoping to show here in just a limited amount of time uh, before the you know the season ends? Um. Just that I'm healthy. Uh, that's the big thing. I want to finish the season. Finish the season healthy. Uh, no more setbacks on the knee. Just uh, go out there and play. You know, I'm not. I'm not too worried about results. 
I just want to go out there, play some baseball, be healthy, um, win a few games. That's about it. And how much are, are you following kind of what the, the major league team has done? I know you're trying to focus on where you are, but the major league team closing in on a wild card spot, competing left and right, A.J. Puck getting called up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether it's at the complex in Arizona or with the team in Vegas, how much excitement has there been towards this major league run here at the lower levels? Oh, yeah, you can feel it. Um, you know, when the, uh, when the A's score a run or something, you know, guys, guys will talk about it, like, hey, you know, A's are up. Uh, there's games on the TV all the time. You know, I was rehabbing. Uh, I watched a lot of games from the training table. Um, you know, everybody's pulling in the same direction. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're right there. They're making a push. And, you know, we hope they do it. And what about your game, other than health? I know you mentioned that. Um, but what about your game do you feel needs the most rounding out? Uh, at, you know, this last week and a half, going into 2020, whatever, uh, to show your major league readiness? You know, I think it's just a consistent at-bats and swing at the right pitches, as always, could use some improvement. Um, you know, it, it's, it's some fine-tuning of things, uh, some footwork behind the plate that I've been working on, uh, you know, making sure making sure I stay in line in my throws. Um, you know, there's a handful of things I could say, but uh, just about just about everything could use some improvement. Fair enough. All right, well, Sean Murphy, A's number three prospect, now officially of the Las Vegas Aviators once again. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're glad you're out there again and, and healthy and able to play the last week and a half, and uh, good luck the rest of the way there with the Aviators. Thank you. Welcome in our good pal Benjamin Hill this week for a discussion of uh, all things business-related across minor league baseball. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and hello, Sam Dykstra. Sitting to my left, uh, I feel this has become the default conference room of uh, yes, it has of, yeah. of our podcasting uh, sessions. Yeah, this is a it's regular, always it's a regular and, spot. Yeah, and it's uh, it's close to where we sit, and it's convenient, and for now until we move. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that would be. We a, only have a what four months left. Five four months. months yeah. yeah. Be a long commute if you continue doing the show in that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seems, no, you listen here, Google. We do this podcast in this room. We're going to do it at 3.30 Eastern, which means we're going to have to leave the office at 1.15 to get there. Yeah. Womp, womp. Anyway, um, <laughs> so let's, let's dive in. Uh, Ben's got a story up on the site. Um, one of the... Minor league leaders in really cool initiatives over the last few seasons uh, has been the Fresno Grizzlies, who kind of helped kick off the uh, the food identity era across the minor leagues, of course, with the Fresno Tacos and that whole phenomenon that that created. Um, this year, for Fresno's uh, Copa de la Diversión identity, they uh, went all out in pursuit of a kind of a new concept for that franchise. The Lowriders de Fresno, that is the team for this year. They have celebrated uh, car culture in the Central Valley. They've done some really cool stuff with this this year. Ben, run us through this, uh, this whole thing for Fresno and kind of the world that this has created for them. Yeah, well, at the end of last month, uh, our colleague, uh, your friend and mine, Josh Jackson, we went to Fresno and Las Vegas, and uh, we were there in Fresno for uh, their second Lowriders weekend. And um, so earlier on the earlier this week on the site, we had a uh, 
I wrote a story about what, what that is, about what the lowriders, why they came to choose that name and uh, how they, they turned it into a thing. Um, it's a pretty interesting story. And I think you'll read this story if you like to see, to read about how logos came together and how identities come together, because it was really quite a process. But essentially, uh, there is a low riding culture in Fresno. It's in the Central Valley, which is kind of between San Jose and Los Angeles, uh, both places that have uh, a strong low riding culture. So it's kind of a meet in the middle standpoint in that regard. Uh, Fulton Street, located right behind the stadium, used to be a pedestrian mall for years, and they recently turned it back into a street. And that kind of uh, jump-started low-riding culture in Fresno in that um, you know, people who are working for the team and fans would start seeing low riders, um, you know, cruising after the ball games, especially on Sundays, uh, where it became kind of a thing uh, in Fresno once Fulton Mall became um, – Fulton Street became a, a place to drive again. It became, you know, you saw lowriders coming back. So the team kind of taking that as a cue said, you know, why don't we do lowriders uh, as an identity? And, you know, so they came up with the logos and they had two uh, lowrider weekends. Josh and I were in town for the second one. Uh, the first one probably would have been better to attend in June because they actually shut down Fulton Street and had a gigantic lowrider car show, um, you know, as part of the weekend with over 100 cars. They hooked up with these guys called the Travel Team. It's like the best of the best uh, lowriders in California who organize shows, not just in California, but all over the country. These guys lent their lamp, their manpower, skill, expertise in you know corralling all these cars together for the show. Uh, when Josh and I it was a went uh, last month, it was a more stripped down affair, but there were still about 20 cars parked on the plaza outside the ballpark. Uh, there was an in-game hopping contest, which is one of the most surreal things I've ever seen at a minor league park. Because I, being from the East Coast. I'm not overly familiar with low riding culture, but I didn't realize they hopped like they did. I mean, these things went back on their two back wheels pretty much as, as high up as they could and then would just slam on the ground. There's a video in the story. Sam is watching it right now. Over um, and over. And over, over and over. It was, it was really uh, an amazing thing. And uh, a really cool element, too, is that when they had the car show in June, um, they said that whoever you know, wins the People's Choice Award at this car show will um, – have their lowrider featured as the 2020 identity. So mm. it's a kind of cool way to uh, to keep cool. same identity, but you know, vary it up every year as well. So um, yeah, just wanted to create a, a larger overview and uh, you know, provide a larger overview of uh, why the Fresno Grizzlies became the lowriders. And of course, having been out there uh, to see it in person, you know, gave me an opportunity once I came back to uh, write something up uh, with a lot of detail. And I hope you enjoy it. MILB.com. And we should say we know what won. We do. Yeah, it was this card called Tequila Sunrise, which is this beautiful shade of red. Yeah, yeah, a 63 Chevy Impala hardback. Um, John Munoz of Antioch, California, his car. Yeah, he won. Um, Does he have to, like, sign over the rights or something? Like, I mean, you could just do a red car. It's not a big deal, and he can tell his friends, but how does that work? Yeah, I have no idea how uh, the specifics of that work, but, uh, you know, that's the car that won, so... We'll find out next year. Yeah, we'll yeah. find out next year when they introduce the 2020 Lowriders logos. Yeah, it's a really cool story. It's up on the site right now um, at milb.com and uh, the road trip stuff um, coming sort of to a close for this year. But that doesn't mean that there is not uh, more content um, from obviously out in the minor league landscape as we narrow down the final two weeks of the regular season. And there's a story from Chattanooga that's really cool. Uh, the lookouts. Uh, the double A Cincinnati Reds affiliate now, as of 2019, um, 
coming up on Friday night, they are staging Green Power Night. And in doing so, they'll become the first minor league baseball team to host a 100% carbon neutral game. Um, this is really cool. They're going to be wearing green jerseys um, and doing a lot of stuff with partnerships with local authorities. This is really neat. Um, and give us the kind of the genesis of this and what all it means for Friday night in Chattanooga. Yeah, this is my story running on the site Thursday, the same day that you are listening to this podcast, assuming you listen to this podcast on the day it comes out, which I'm sure you do. Um, so, uh, yeah, the lookouts, uh, there have been uh, carbon neutral games in the major leagues before, but this is the first uh, 100% carbon neutral game in minor league baseball, Green Power Night. Um, so the, the lookouts are partnering with uh, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and EPB, which is a local energy provider, uh, to create this carbon neutral game. And basically what it is, is EPB started a program called Solar Share, and there's a community solar installation on Holtzclaw Avenue in Chattanooga um, you know, that provides solar power. So the Lookouts game will be powered by you know, credits obtained through the Solar Share program. And you know, that's how these you know, Solar Share works. I mean, it's not like you can convert AT&T Field, the home of the Lookouts, to all solar energy for a night and be like, hey, we did it without any carbon. Obviously, the ballpark will run as normal, but it will be powered via – uh, credits gen- uh, through solar energy that is generated credits for the solar energy that is generated uh, through solar share uh, which is located in Chattanooga so it was a cool thing I talked to people from um, the TVA about how this all came together uh, talked to lookouts about how it came together and just kind of wanted to promote the idea that you know this is something that other minor league teams could look into uh, I think fans could be interested because a lot of these programs you know are tailored for anyone from you know, people who rent homes, own homes, run businesses, um, you, you can, uh, you know, use solar energy for, for whatever your energy are, energy needs are in a lot of cases. So I think it's a good way to promote that option uh, to the extent it's available and to promote the idea that other minor league teams could look at, you know, potential partnerships in their area uh, to, you know, offset their carbon output and uh, be a little greener. Yeah. And, and what else are they doing as part of this? Because it, it feels like a good initiative, but it's also a promotion in terms of green. Is there is this one of those times where it's kind of promoting something other than the game itself or are they tying in other things environmentally speaking? I mean, I think if you're at the game, you I don't think it's going to be a necessarily like a, a huge blowout around the theme. Mm-hmm. I think um, obviously with the green uniform, that's a very easy tie in to know what's happening. I do believe there's uh, some mini bats that say green power night on them that will be given away. Uh, obviously, there'll be representatives from EPB, Solar Share, um, you know, community organizations, sustainability organizations, um, you know, spreading awareness around those themes. Um, so I think it's, it's more just getting the word out that this is what they're doing and you can continue to do it and hopefully the lookouts will continue to do it and uh you know use as clean energy as possible to power these ball games i shuddered to think about the amount of energy generated by minor league ballparks <laughs> uh, 160 teams throughout the season but uh that's just the way it goes yeah i was gonna ask too because you said you talked to people with the tva and the tva is obviously an integral part of bringing electricity to the tennessee valley a whole big program that was started in, in the middle of the last century but um is this replicable without them i mean is it just as simple as having you know a big solar farm near you that you buy credits from i mean what what came up in your conversations with them about how easy this is, could be for other teams to copy yeah i mean i think there has to be you know it's been done on the major league level i think seattle was the first one to do it way back in 2008 it's been done in boston for a number of years uh, i believe uh, in florida it's been done and um, I can't remember if that was Miami or Tampa. So obviously there does have to be the local provider who offers some sort of solar share program where you can get credits to, you know, have your your energy provided in a 
in a sustainable way. I'm not saying it will work all over the country, but I do believe that there are a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities to do this, uh, certainly well beyond uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority and EPB, which is Chattanooga's local provider. That story up on the site as of today when uh, the podcast drops. And uh, one other one that is up on the site right now, uh, Ben took a trip recently to El Paso, which was his first trip to El Paso since 2014. And uh, even back in that first season, pointed out how great the food was, and that has not changed at all in 2019. If anything, it's better. Um, Daniel Acuna was your designated eater this time around in El Paso, and he's got kind of a cool tie-in with with the Chihuahuas. Uh, He and his longtime girlfriend, Andrea, uh, they started dating in 2014, which was a Chihuahua's inaugural season. They now have a baby girl who will turn one in September. But this is kind of a cool profile of, uh, of one of the guys who, you know, has turned into one of the characters that you get to meet in minor league baseball from season to season. Yeah, that's what I love about the designated eaters. And, um, you know, sometimes my designated eater material, these are the people that, uh, you know, consume the ballpark food that my gluten-free diet prohibits. It's a, uh, a program, if you will, I've been running uh, since 2012 when I go on the road. Uh, sometimes those designated eater posts might take me a little while to get out. They get, kind of get lost in the shuffle of other road trips, but they all get out. So here we are talking about uh, – you know, Fresno Lowriders, which I visited last month, wrote about this month. The, the El Paso trip was in June. I'm writing about Chattanooga. It's all it's hard to keep track of. But when I was in El Paso, um, yeah, Daniel Cunha, he was the designated eater. And uh, I've always been impressed with the Chihuahua's food scene. Um, you know, they're located on the border, you know, of Mexico. Juarez is, you know, basically right behind the ballpark. So obviously, there's a lot of great Mexican food, really good nachos. Um, there is the uh, Clamado Norteño, which is I was told is a Bloody Mary for beer, um, you know, with clam juice, tomato juice, and like a huge stick of beef jerky in the glass, which I had uh, never seen at a ballpark before. And I was also surprised to learn that that is a non-alcoholic drink. And the way you do it is you get a beer as well. And as you drink your Clamato Norteño, then you just refill it with beer, you know, take a sip, add some beer. And uh, so it's kind of like a DIY alcoholic drink, but the drink itself does not contain alcohol. Interesting. The drink itself is tomato juice and clam juice and this big piece of beef jerky and <laughs> like a celery and olives and all sorts of stuff. But you add your own beer as you go through. So drinking. it's a good way for them to sell two for one, basically, is what they're doing. Yeah, basically, if you're ordering a Clamato Norteño, you can just drink it as it is. But you probably are also getting a beer. And as you you know drink three or four ounces out of the Clamato, then you add some beer or whatever your uh, system is. Or maybe you get an even bigger glass and pour the Clamato in with the beer or whatever it is. They also had the Pina Loca, which is, again, a non-alcoholic drink. is a virgin pina colada in a hollowed-out pineapple with camoy and uh, – or is it chamoy? Sorry. Um, you know, chunks of pineapple, chili powder, you know, just really unique uh, Mexican flavors in these in these food and drinks. And then just some really uh, creative stuff like a Rangoon dog, which is like a deep fried like wonton hot dog with a, inside a deep fried wonton with a cream cheese and mango chili sauce. Oh, Daniel Acuna, my designated eater, loved the Rangoon dog. There was the elote dog, which is like the Mexican street corn. Well, you know, elote on a, dog on a, you're on a hot language, dog, yeah. you know, that, that's pretty good. The huevos ranchero burger. Yeah, with, that's what I want. It looks wonderful. I have a slow motion video of Daniel biting into it because, you know, they made that that, that egg very, uh, very runny, very over easy. So when he bites into that thing, and, and not just him, but one one bites into a huevos ranchero burger, you're going to have this oh, like no. explosion yeah. of the yolk. Um, you know, he said it was a, a ten on the mesometer. I'm not sure. <laughs> If the mesometer is an official thing, but uh, why, why can't we make it an official? Yeah, thing? yeah. You're the one who controls these things. That's right. I would call it the mesometer, though. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So just really creative stuff. Huevos Rancheros, Clamato Norteños, Nachos in a Dog Bowl. Uh, we didn't even get to the stand that was like all alligator. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> they, they got some. They got some good stuff in El Paso. I really enjoy visiting, and uh, you know, I had some uh, features from there a while ago. But now coming, circling back, and uh, writing some stuff about the food is something I enjoyed. And I've got more food-related posts coming. I mean, it's uh, I'm all over the place, and I'm hitting the road again next week for a little jaunt to. Uh, Potomac saying goodbye to Fitzner Stadium and then Hagerstown where I've not been for uh, since 2010. Mm-hmm. So writing stuff about El Paso, writing stuff about Fresno, writing stuff about Chattanooga. Got a couple other uh, promo stories coming next week just about interesting things taking place across the landscape. Then going to Potomac, going to Hagerstown. And, uh, you know, this is America. Do you have your designated years yet? I do not. I, I've been uh, accepting uh, applications. Technically, the deadline was today, but I have not gotten too many, especially for Potomac. So uh, Benjamin.Hill at MLB.com. If you think you might be in Potomac August 28th, 29th, Hagerstown August 30th, 31st, and want to be a designated eater, get in touch much sooner than later because obviously that's coming up. We're in the home stretch with all things. I'm sure you guys are talking about the end of the season and other elements of this podcast. I'm thinking about the end of the season, but there is still so much to go. Uh, for me, at least in terms of material to write, but we're all on the home stretch in our own separate ways and and together as well. Benjamin Hill at MLB.com. You can get in touch with Ben if you uh, would like to test your mettle at being a designated eater in Potomac and Hagerstown. And you can find Ben's stories up on the site right now at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. And uh, that'll do it for this week, Ben. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah, sounds good. And I, at the end of last podcast, if you recall, I asked about my. Uh, John Fogarty, go to see John Fogarty or go right, see Right, yeah. Yeah, my, my dilemma last week was should I go see John Fogarty, which I, who had had tickets for months, or go uh, play in a softball playoff game? And I chose softball and we lost, but no regrets. Ah. Yeah. Well, There's yeah. always fall ball. And, ho- <laughs> and, and hopefully Fogarty will come back around. The but... Central Park Fall League, as we call it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we'll see. It's the Arizona Fall League and the Central Park. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Equal skill levels. Thanks, man. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Sam. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>Wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show. Big thanks to Sean Murphy for joining us and Benjamin Hill as well. MILB.TV, we're into the final couple of weeks of the regular season, but you can get your subscription, check out the uh, the rest of these playoff races, and then on into the postseason. Uh, Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV? Yeah, so uh, as I kind of alluded to in, in the opening segment, Adley Rutschman, the top overall pick in this year's draft out of Oregon State, now the top prospect in the Baltimore Orioles system, moved up from Class A short season Aberdeen to Class A Delmarva. Um, not wholly interesting in terms of a challenge for him, but it's just another step on the ladder. Uh, and he's joining the Shorebirds at a time when, like I said, they, they already won the first half division title. They're going for the second half division title. And you know he'll be with the team, I think, barring some other move, very, very late. Uh, he'll be with the team for the Sally League playoffs. The reason I bring them up in this segment is I believe the first time you'll be able to see him on MILB TV after this episode comes out is next Monday. The Shorebirds travel to Lakewood, and Lakewood has a MILB TV setup. Uh, so if you're an Oriole fan looking to watch Adley Rutschman uh, as much as you can before you know, his first full season, then gobble up as much Rutschman content as you can. Uh, Lakewood on Monday is a pretty, pretty – good place to start uh rushman like i mentioned before had five hits in his last game 
with the Ironbirds. That brought up his slash line uh, over 20 games with Aberdeen to 325, 413, 481. Uh, he hit a homer in that game. He also hit a triple. Uh, it seems to be all coming together for him here late, which is kind of to be expected. Uh, you know, he had a long season at Oregon State, then has to come into pro ball, learn a new system, all that kind of stuff. It took him a while to pick up steam. But now the switch hitter is doing extremely well. Uh, he will be challenged a little bit more at, at Class A than he was at Class A short season. But uh, I have no doubts that he can continue this momentum and uh, continue pulverizing the ball like he was at Aberdeen. So that should be pretty fun to actually watch him on Milb TV starting next Monday when Delmarva goes to Lakewood. Uh, Tyler, which series or sets of games do you got your eye on? Yeah, that double-A Arkansas team we talked about a little bit ago, which uh, is trying to chase down Tulsa, a game back in the playoff race in the Texas League. Um, They are at home this weekend, and they're actually going to face the same two teams for the rest of the regular season. So they got Corpus Christi uh, until Thursday, and then starting on Friday, they'll be home against Amarillo for three games, then on the road at Corpus Christi and on the road at Amarillo to finish out the season. But that team right now, uh, Sam talked a little bit about the roster earlier on in the episode. They've got uh, Justin Dunn, of course, on that roster on the pitch staff justice sheffield is at the double a level right now with that squad and has pitched really really well uh with arkansas since being sent there um but the position player side jared kellenick and kyle lewis and evan white and all these guys i mean that is a really fun roster in the mariners organization and um seeing if down the stretch over these last couple of weeks they can catch Tulsa and squeak their way into the Texas League playoffs with that division crown. Uh, They will be home for the weekend, and you can catch them on MILB.TV. And uh, that will do it for this week's episode. Again, a big thanks to Sean Murphy and to Benjamin Hill. Um, Next week... And for uh, a few weeks after that, the show goes global. Um, So we're not entirely positive as to what the schedule will be next week, but I've got a broadcasting assignment that starts next week uh, in South Korea. So um, we'll be bringing you a podcast. That much we know. Uh, We just don't know if it will be on the regularly scheduled day. Uh, But, you know. You guys are so adaptable, always. Yeah. Every week, sometimes when we mix things up, we never hear uh, an ill word. So right, and that's you know that's why work. you subscribe to the podcast. It automatically pops up. Exactly. Your, there's nothing you need to do it after. It just shows up for you. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. It's well, fantastic. When we have it to present to you, we we, we will let you know through the social When channel. we say you can get it, then <laughs> you can get it. <laughs> no, but uh, we'll, have, we'll have some fun. And, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll wrap this one. Uh, For Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week.